I want to give you permission tonight if you uh, feel like I need to do this. Probably don't need to do it. But I want to give you the permission tonight just to seek just unadulterated, unhindered, no barriers seeking. Um, coming to realize in my life that uh, I run into two types of people on a consistent basis. The first type uh, claims they're Christian and no matter when they're in church, no matter if they're uh, outside of church, no matter if it's during revival, no matter if it's outside of revival, um, they live a lifestyle that is so intensely focused on Jesus that they make everyone else around them better people. And then I meet another kind of people who also claim they're Christians and they're up and down, they're wishy-washy, they're, they go from excited to dead, they go, to, uh, they go from uh, you know, uh, up to down, they're really great on, uh, you know, during revival times, during up times, and then other times they're just you know, tossed and blown. I want to be the kind of individual that uh, my intensity after him reaches out and makes everyone around me better. I really want to live like that. I do. I want to be the real deal. And I want to give you the opportunity tonight to say, Jesus, make me into that kind of a person. Make me narrow. I've been accused all my life of being hyperactive. <laughs> you know? And maybe I am. Maybe I am hyperactive. Yeah, maybe I am hyperactive. But, uh, you know, uh, I think we're all driven after something. I think we're all driven after something. It's just who are you, who are you driven by? Where are you going to focus? Where, you know, where is that drivenness going to be focused on? And... Uh, I want to give you the opportunity tonight to just let it be focused on Him. I want to work you out a little bit tonight, and I'm going to have you jumping around from a few different passages of Scripture, and uh, so you're going to need your Bibles. I want you to mark John chapter 5, and I want to reference a passage of Scripture in John chapter 5. I also would like you to mark, uh, if you would be willing, Hebrews chapter 1. And of course, our passage of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this evening is going to be in the book of Revelation chapter 1. I'm probably going to reference or read a couple other passages of Scripture that will be easy to get to from those main points. So I'm going to cause you to work a little bit tonight. But I want to look with you this evening at Revelation chapter 1 and again at verse 3. Been uh, really uh, aggressively after what's been going on in these first three verses of Revelation chapter 1. We know that there's basically one division in the book. Uh, there's other subsections and you can divide these other, uh, the, the, the two portions up in several different ways. I mean, we have several different divisions in the first section, but the basic one, there's one basic division, the most basic level, and that's in between verses three and four of chapter one. And the first three verses of chapter one make up the first section and that's the prologue. Okay? It's not necessarily a part of the book itself, meaning that this is the section that make up the words before the actual prophecy itself. In fact, if you have the New International Version, above these first three verses, you're going to find the Greek term pro, uh, prologue right there, which is a compound Greek word made up of two words, pro and logos. Pro being uh, before and logos meaning word. So these are the words before the actual prophecy itself. This is very typical of John's writings. He does this in three of the five. And he puts this here to set boundaries or parameters by which you to receive the book. Which tells us these are really, really significant. One of the things that we found helpful with these first three verses is since they aren't a part of the prophecy itself, 
they're typically Johanian. They're typically uh, John's language. Okay, it's typical John language. In other words, some of the words and phrases he uses here are words and phrases that he always uses in all of his writings. And so it's really helpful if you're familiar with any of John's writings, you're going to be familiar with these first three verses. We've been dividing this up and looking at it each night, but really when you want to take this, uh, these first three verses and you want to summarize what's going on in these, there's basically three, three things taking place here. Number one, you realize that this, these first three verses describe the book of Revelation as a prophecy. Okay? You describe the book of Revelation as a prophecy. John describes it as a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay? In fact... Uh, that's where we, you know, where we get the title of the book. The book is entitled Revelation. But that is a descriptive term that is used to describe the prophecy. The book is a prophecy. And we understand that prophecy uh, was really understood as being an emphasis not on the when of an event, but on God moving and acting on his, uh, you know, in his people's behalf. Okay? So the content of this prophecy is Jesus. Okay? It's a descriptive term. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. So the first aspect of the first three verses is that, the, uh, is that this book is a prophecy. The second aspect of these first three verses, what it's uh, emphasizing, is that this is not only a prophecy, but he gives us the purpose of the prophecy. And the purpose of the prophecy is to show his servants what must quickly take place. Okay? Jesus comes and he reveals himself specifically to the seven churches in Asia Minor, though it's also to any who reads it. But he reveals himself, and what he reveals to them, of course, is the Father. And what he reveals is to take place in our life at this moment, very quickly. Um, as a side note, I really found in my life that when Jesus takes the time to reveal truth to me, it requires an absolute immediate response. In other words, it's not casual when he addresses you. It's not casual when he speaks to you. It's not uh, a sideline. It's not just, well, I'll tell you now, but you know, it's not really a big deal. I'll talk to you about it later as well. When he reveals himself to you, respond immediately. In fact, I believe the consequences to not responding to Jesus Christ immediately, not oftentimes, the big deal is not oftentimes physical consequences, but there are eternal consequences by saying no to Jesus. Right. Sure. I really believe that. See, I believe what I do here affects here. Sure. You wouldn't believe that, but you realize saying no to Jesus in a service like this doesn't, not, it doesn't only affect you, it affects everyone else in the entire service. Uh, we, we did a, when I, this is my very first revival. Maybe that's not true. It was close. I did this revival at this church. Showed up Sunday morning, service was fine. Sunday night, attendance literally doubled. And I thought, wow, man, I'm doing something right. Wow. Praise the Lord. <laughs> you know? What I found out later is uh, they went through a church split a few weeks ago. And the other half came back because they all went to another church on the other side of town. And they all came back for the evening service. One half of the church sat on one side. The other half of the church sat on the other side. Oh, it was fun. It was fun. I did not know what was going on, but it affected the atmosphere in that place, man. There was hate and negativity and bitterness and it was just... It was horrible. See, how we respond to him, it, it, see, there, are, there are literal eternal consequences that are at stake. So Jesus, the, and the purpose of the revelation is to show his servants what must take place right now. And when he comes to these seven churches of Asia Minor, when Jesus addresses these seven churches and he reveals himself, see, they are to respond immediately. 
It's not like, well, let me get back to you. Let me pray about it. Let me see what happens. Let me try this, that, and the other, and then I'll get back to you. See, it's not that to show His servants what must quickly take place. There's purpose involved. Now, the third aspect that's going on here in these first three verses is perspective. Okay? He's getting you into the perspective of how you are to see the book. And of course, what's this perspective? That everything in this book is absolutely centered on the person of Jesus Christ. And if you come, I believe this. See, if you come into the book of Revelation for any other purpose than to get to know Him, shut the book, man. Because you're missing the whole deal. See, if you come in here to find out when gas prices are going to come down, you're going to go astray. Okay? If you come here to find out, you know, to see if Bush actually is the Antichrist, you're going astray. Okay? And I can pick a Democrat too, but hey. See, it doesn't, see, if you come into this book with any other reason than to say, Jesus, reveal yourself to me, you're coming astray. Because John tells us, hey, that the perspective to receive this book, see, the whole big deal, what's going on here, is this is an unveiling of the person of Jesus Christ. See, of course, we know a lot about the physical details of his life, and there's more than that, of course, in the New Testament. A ton more than that. But what you see going on in the book of Revelation in an eternity setting is the insides of Jesus that he's on display. Haven't you ever longed to know that? Just, just to look inside of him, just to see what makes him tick. That's what's going on here. It's a perspective. And it colors the entire book. See, everything is laid bare. There's, there's uh, of course, you see these seven churches. And you not only see the seven churches on the front, but see, Jesus reveals, see, there's stuff that's going on inside. It's not just the activity. This, is, this has been really, really significant in my life. Christianity is beyond activities. This is so basic. This is so fundamental. Christianity is beyond activities. You can do all the things that Christians do and still die and go to hell. You can tithe. You can not drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. Okay? You can not lie, not steal. Okay? Wear the right clothing, say the right things, give the right testimonies and die and go to hell. Because Christianity is beyond activities. See, what makes me a Christian is not what I do. What makes me a Christian is the person that I am in Christ. <laughs> I can't tell you that. I can't be strong enough on that. It's the indwelling presence of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit in my life that makes me... See, Christianity is talked about less by Jesus in terms of what He's doing as more, uh, it's more talked about by Him in terms of who He is. Christianity from Jesus' perspective was never a discipline. It was never a discipline. It was always just drives and it was, I can't help myself kind of thing. And it's, it's the language that he uses. I mean, and of course, this is, just isn't Jesus. This is the new covenant theology. I mean, Paul himself says, hey, the, the attributes of the Christian life are the fruit, the byproduct of the Spirit of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit of your trying hard. Did you know that? Really? And if you ain't, if you ain't doing this, you're just, you, know, you really need to get your act together. Okay? So again, the, we know that's not true. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? See, the attributes of the Christian life are the fruit of who He is. Let me give you one of them. Patience. Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. See, all my life people say, Jeremiah, you need to be more patient. In fact, this is kind of a neat story. This is just a few weeks ago, I'm at this church and uh, I'm dipping. I dip a lot. I'm dipping into these two ladies' conversation. This is in Florida. And uh, this one lady is talking about her husband. And the other lady says, well, you just need to be patient. Really, you just need to be more patient. 
And I looked over and said, give it up. <laughs> You'll never be patient. Because you can't discipline yourself to be patient. You're never going to be patient. The only chance you have of being patient is to come before Jesus and say, help, I'm not patient. Come in my life and be what I am not. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. If your body is out of control, well, join the club. Come to Jesus and say, hey, I can't control my body. Move down in my life and control what I was never meant to control. This, this is not just... This is the deal, man. This is the deal. So Christianity, you understand, the perspective that we've got to get a hold of is Christianity is beyond activities. Okay? And it's literally, we are the habitation of Christ Himself through the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God comes down and lives in our life. And the life that we live is not due to us, it's due to Him. Got to get into that perspective. It's beyond activities. And this is thrown in the face of the seven churches of Asia Minor and of course throughout the whole book of Revelation. So those are the three aspects. That this is a prophecy, which is all about Him. The purpose of the prophecy is to show us, which is what's going on in Him, it's supposed to go on in us. And the third aspect is the perspective. Now this colors verse 3, which we're going to look at tonight and which we looked at last night. What we looked at last night, we centered it on this word blessed. Because he writes, after he just gives this, this description of the prophecy, he says in verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Really got interested in the idea of the word for blessed because it wasn't the typical word. It wasn't the word that I thought it was. It wasn't like if you get into the prophecy, you'll be blessed, meaning you'll be a millionaire. Wow, that'll be great. You know, Which I'm an evangelist and I am, but that's beside the point. Okay? Uh, the idea, if you get in this prophecy, it's not talking about eulogos. Okay? It's not talking about that kind of blessing, which is the speaking of God and the, the bestowing upon us uh, the attributes of who He is. The Greek word is mark, uh, markarios, markarios, which is a blessing due to activities. Not in the secular sense, but in, or in the non-religious sense, but in the religious sense. Okay? I'm blessed due to activities in the religious sense due to God's hand in my life. Okay. Why am I blessed? Because God's hand has moved into my life and He's manipulating the circumstances of my life. That's why I'm blessed. As a direct result of God's hand. Now, a telltale sign of that is suffering, but I need to add something onto this. You can be suffering as a Christian, not due to God's hand in your life. And that's not this blessing. Okay? For instance. I've got to throw a for instance in here. Guy comes to church. Well, I've got a speeding ticket on the way to church. Oh, I'm suffering for Jesus. No, you're not. You're a lead foot. Okay? No, you're not. Don't pin that one on Jesus. All right? That's, Jesus doesn't make you speed. Slow down. Okay? The blessing we're talking about is due to God's hand in my life, placing me in a circumstance of my life, I begin to suffer. Because of what He's doing in my life. I believe that the center of Christianity is a cross, which signifies death to myself. And if I'm really going to be involved in the kingdom, if I'm really going to be used by Him, Jeremiah dies. Jeremiah is set aside. See, my hopes, my dreams, my aspirations are, and my life is focused in on Him. And the deeper you get into Him, the deeper that takes place. Isn't that exciting? See, that's, that's the idea. Mary was into this. See, her whole wedding plans, that was a disaster, man. Invitations had to be sent back. I mean, it was terrible. I mean, she's got that whole thing planned out. God sticks his hand right in the middle of her life. You're pregnant. Oh. And she suffered due to the moving of God's hand in her life. Goes over to Elizabeth and she said, You're blessed. Mary goes, I know. <laughs> As a direct result of God's hand. Are you willing to have that kind of blessing in your life? If you are, I want to talk to you about the next step. 
The cost of this blessing we looked at is suffering. If you're really going to get into what he's getting into, if you're really going to be identified with Christ, he's on a hill on a cross. Okay? Yes, he's raised, but it's, it's the cross lifestyle. Now, what I want to talk to you about tonight is really interesting. We talked about and looked at last night the cost of the blessing. What I lo- want to look with you at tonight just briefly, as briefly as we can get, which front evangelist is not that brief. What I want to look at with you tonight is the avenue of the blessing. Okay? We know the cost of the blessing. You understand? But I want to look at with you tonight the avenue of the blessing. And it's in, these, it's in this first phrase. He says, blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. I want to look at two things with you in this passage. The first thing is, is the words of this prophecy. You're blessed as a direct result of the words of this prophecy. First part of it. The second part of it, and we're actually looking at these in reverse order, is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Okay? And again, i kind of going to have to impress upon you, encourage you. I'm going to need for you to dump some of your perspective. Some of the things that perhaps we pick up from the culture of our day and get into a biblical perspective of prophecy, the words of this prophecy, and a biblical perspective of reading the words of this prophecy. For I believe it's a little bit different than the way we approach it in our culture. First thing I want to look at with you is the idea of prophecy. The words of this prophecy, what does he mean? Well, first of all, when he says prophecy, we need to understand that prophecy is actually a small portion of the overall large collection of inspired writings that we call Scripture. Okay? Let me say it again. Prophecy is just a small portion of what we have as Scripture. Okay? It's a small portion of the overall portion that we have as Scripture. And we understand this as authoritative, inspired writings. Okay? Now, what we believe as in terms of inspired writings is that this may have been written by man, but it was authored by God. In other words, when you open your Bible to the book of Lamentations or the book of Ezekiel or the book of Isaiah, see Isaiah and Ezekiel, see they didn't write that stuff down. He's, I mean, they didn't come up with that stuff. He came up with that stuff. That this, and, and again, it, we, didn't even, we didn't even authorize this or appoint this as authoritative. We recognized this as authoritative. Oftentimes after the fact. We took these things that, whoa, wow, hey, this stuff is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. Okay. This is not casual. Okay? So we understand prophecy as a small portion of the overall collection of writings that we view as literally the Word of God. Now, when you begin to look at Scripture and prophecy, of course, prophecy, we've been talking about this all week, prophecy came through the prophets, but prophecy also at times came not from prophets. It came from all sorts of people. In fact, uh, the high priest, uh, Caiaphas, I think, prophesied. So in the, I'm preaching. I should know this. It's um, where Caiaphas prophesied on Jesus' behalf. And he, you know, uh, one man died instead of the whole nation. Yeah, he, hey, he prophesied. Prophecy was the foretelling. Okay? It was the foretelling of things that were, uh, that were going to happen. It was a focus on things that were going to take place, oftentimes spoken through the prophets. But prophecy is just a portion of the overall idea of Scripture. I think probably the most helpful way to understand the book of Revelation, hear this, the most helpful way to understand the book of Revelation is to understand it as Scripture. Okay? We understand it as the, as the inspired Word of God. Okay? The book of Revelation, prophecy as Scripture. And I want to remind you that these first three verses, again, 
These, these are written in John's own language. This is his way of talking. I mean, it's a lot of similar terminology. If you go back and you read the Gospel according to John and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you're going to continually run into the same kind of things, maybe talked about a little bit longer, uh, not in such short statements, but the same kind of things that are being talked about here. And he has addressed the authority. He has addressed what's going on here in terms of the importance of Scripture. I want to express this. I want to talk to you a little bit about this. So I want you to turn back, if you would, to John chapter 5. There was a perspective. Uh, there was a perspective of Scripture, of the Word of God, that they had in their day that I believe we miss in our day. Um, we call all kinds of things the Word of God, or a word from the Lord, or or God's Word, or God's will. Um, I I've had this happen. Maybe it's just me, but I've had it happen all the time. Where people will come up to me and say, uh, you know, I'm a prophet. I've had that four or five times. People walk right up to me and say, I'm a prophet. And I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> That's all I need. Most of the time it's on an airplane. I'm stuck with them for like five hours. You know? uh, they come up to me and say, I'm a prophet and I have you know, God's word to you. Which in my mind is dangerous. Because if a prophet ever says anything that doesn't come to pass, they're a false prophet. And uh, I was in a service in Indiana, of all places. A guy comes up to me before the service and said, I'm a prophet. I said, well, I'm Jeremiah. I'm the evangelist this week. And he said, I've got a word of, uh, I've got a word of the Lord for you. Word from God. I said, all right. He said, you're supposed to speak out of the Gospel of John. I said, well, that's all I got, man. Good thing. <laughs> Though I almost preached out of Titus. Just to preach out of Titus. And then come up and say, listen, one of us is going to hell. I'm sure it's not me. <laughs> okay? That's serious business, you understand. Say that little tongue-in-cheek. But see, someone coming up saying, this is the word of the Lord to you, this is the word of God, that may be true, and I guess in a roundabout way, I'm not going to knock that. Okay? God spoke to me and it happened through a newspaper. God spoke to me and it happened through a billboard. I'm not going to knock that. I'm not going to disregard that. But I'm going to say that God speaking that way is not how I would describe God speaking in this way. Right. Because God speaking to me through a billboard, yes, may be true. But see, there's always a chance that's not true. God speaking to me through, you know, even one of you may be true. But there's always a chance, you know, you could have ate too much. I was there at the dinner tonight. And uh, you might have had coffee and we know what that does to you. And so there's always a chance that you could be off or be mistaken. You don't have that chance with this. This is always God's Word. When you open up to John chapter 3, verse 16 and read, For God so loved the world, there's not a chance in the world you're going to walk away and say, Nah. <laughs> That's probably just mistaken. Okay. No, no, no. This is always God's Word. See, this is, there, is, there is an inspiration here. There is a truth here. I believe an absolute truth. And I believe this is where it's located. Okay? I believe sometimes we miss a little bit of that in our society. In John chapter 5, it's interesting that Jesus is in dialogue. I really want you to center in with me on this. And I want you to focus with me on verses 37 and 38. Just two quick verses. We're going to refer later to verses 39 and 40. And I'll just read those to you at that time because they're quick. But in verses 37 and 38, Jesus is describing to the leadership of Israel, Scripture. And it's in the overall context of Scripture 
Because he brings that up in verse 39. You diligently studied the Scriptures. So he talks about their perspective of the Scripture. But in verses 37 and 38, he's talking about his understanding of the Scripture as the testimony of the Father. Okay? Scripture for Jesus was the speaking, the testimony of the Father, and he describes it in three particular ways. He says in verse 37, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice. You have never seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. And so he, des he describes Scripture in three particular ways. Now again, I wish I had time to walk all the way through this passage and talk to you about how they, how they interlink, and, uh, interlink with verses 39 and 40 and how absolutely Jesus is talking about the Scriptures. Okay? But you're going to take my word for that that he is. He's talking about Scripture here and he refers to it. This is powerful. The way Jesus talks about... Think what this would do to your Bible study. The way Jesus talks about Bible, the way Jesus talks about Scripture is that it's the Father's voice, it's His form, and it's His Word. From Jesus' perspective, when you get into this thing, it's Him speaking to you. Now, the closest that I can come to confirming this to you uh, would be to give you an example of this as it is given to us in the book of Hebrews. I ask you to mark that passage of Scripture. And over in the book of Hebrews, you have this same kind of language that's used. And by the way, it's going on uh, in several passages of Scripture in the New Testament, but I found it really, really blatant in Hebrews, and for time's sake, we'll just look at this. The book of Hebrews, the first few chapters are all dedicated to Christ Jesus being superior to all things. He begins talking about angels. Now listen to this. The author says, he gives, he's talking about angels again, giving comment on angels. And this is what he says in verse 5. He says, For to which of the angels did God ever say? Okay, he says, God said this. And then he quotes, You are my son, today I have become your father. Now where did he get that? It's annotated probably at the bottom of your Bible. Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Now he said God said this. Now I read that, scratched my head and said, Hold on a second. I thought David wrote that. And he just laughed and said, no, hey, David didn't come up with that. God said that. David wrote it down. Okay? And literally, the, the author of the book of Hebrews, which is the mindset of the first century Christians, the early church, hear this, this is huge. The mindset of the early church was that when you got into the Scriptures, you weren't talking about David's opinion, you weren't talking about Ezekiel's opinion, you weren't talking about Isaiah's opinion. When you got into the Scriptures, they took those things and placed them on the lips of God. God was speaking to you. In fact, when he quotes it, he doesn't say, hey, David, man, really like David. Yeah, he's got a lot of good things to say. Here's something he said. When he quotes David, he says, for to which of the angels did God ever say? And, he, uh, and then if you don't get it there, he says it again, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, where did he get that one from? 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. 14, yeah, 14. And of course, we scratch our head and think, I thought, I thought Samuel said that. <laughs> he laugh and slap his knee and say, say, Samuel didn't come up with that. God said that. And throughout, think about that. Throughout the first four chapters, every single time, I challenge you to look at this yourself, especially in the book of Acts. It's really heavy in the book of Acts. But look throughout the New Testament. More times than not, when Old Testament scripture is quoted, it's not, it's not, addressed by, it's not stamped to the one who wrote it down, it's literally taken and set on the lips of God. 
And in the fourth first chapter of Hebrews, it's God said this, God said this. Here's a couple more for you. Verse 6. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And of course, he got that one from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. And we scratch our head and say, hold on, that's law. Yeah, Moses chiseled that thing out, you know. Or at least wrote it down in some form or another. But see, Moses didn't come up with that. God said that. So the scriptures are taken and placed on the lips of God. That was Hebrews. Back in John chapter 5, this is really, it's almost reminiscent. Hear this. It's almost reminiscent of the way Jesus refers to the scriptures. If I could convince you, I don't know how I could do this. If I could convince you that when you got into this thing, this is not an opinion. I struggle with that a bit in college. This is not a philosophy, man. This is not something you handle. It, it handles you. I mean, this is dangerous. By the time you get to Hebrews chapter 4, the author says, listen, by the way, be careful. It's a sharp, double-edged sword. It'll divide you. <laughs> you rub up against this thing and you'll come away. Because when you get into this thing, it's not just another book. It's alive. And the author is seized. And it's different than any other book you ever read. We really got into uh, uh, Kierkegaard. Uh, some people pronounce his name Kierkegaard in college. Uh, Mark and I really got after him. Phenomenal guy. Wrote to, see, we studied some of his writings. And then we would dialogue on what he meant. Well, who knows? The guy's dead. Been dead for 100 years or so. What does he mean? No one will ever know. Is that the same thing with this? No. Because the author's alive. And when you get into this thing, he's speaking to you, man. Jumps right out of the page and says, whack! And Jesus describes it. Hey, man, you've never heard his voice. That when you get into the scripture, Jesus wasn't just like, oh yeah, the Bible. Studies, do it every morning. Yep, one hour in the morning, read the Bible, do my devotions, daily bread, back in Jesus' day. And uh, you know, I try to read it and memorize it. And See, for him, getting into the scripture was hearing his voice. But I think it's also neat that it wasn't just hearing his voice. Jesus tacks onto that. You also see his form. You also see his form. Found it interesting. You go back and look at some of the Old Testament prophets. My favorite's uh, Hosea. You see what God looks like as a husband. You see what God looks like as a husband looking into the scriptures. You want to know what kind of husband you're supposed to be? God shows you. And Hosea becomes a wife to uh, Gomer as God was to the people of Israel. And demonstrates that to all the people of Israel. Wouldn't it be something, teenager, if you said, man, how would God want me to live as a 17-year-old girl at Wapani High School? <laughs> Get in here. Get in here because He's going to reveal what, hey, what that looks like. Because you get to see the form of the Lord. Jesus says when He gets in the Scripture, you not only hear His voice, you not only see His form, but then He says that this Word can dwell in you. It's not just a kind of in one ear, out the other. My grandma would say that to me. It's like it goes in one ear and out the other. Not that kind of thing. It literally goes in and just makes its home within you. Okay, It rests upon your hearts. It's, it becomes... Um, you ever come apart a, across a passage of Scripture and just wrote your name over it? Just took ownership of that thing? Said, Jesus, I don't want that to be different than me. In fact, I want to be able to look at that passage of Scripture and know that it's written on the fleshly tablets of my heart. In other words, I don't want any part of my life to be different than this book. 
I want to be a written display of the Word walking around. I want to have this thing dwell inside of me. See, when Jesus got into the Scriptures, now this will be a jump for some of us. When Jesus got into the Scriptures, they were God speaking to Him. They were His voice, His form, and His Word. I believe that they were the that they were the authority of God Himself even in His life. This is really interesting. See, my perspective of Jesus uh, as a young Christian was that Jesus came and did whatever He wanted to do. He came and just did it. I don't, I don't believe that. I think Jesus came and come under the authority of the Word. I think Jesus came and came under the authority of Scripture. Now, that'll be hard for some of us to buy, but let me just flip back a couple pages if you would. Again, we're looking at Scripture and the authority that it has. When we're talking about the words of the prophecy of the book of Revelation, this is not casual stuff to these people in this culture. This wasn't flippant type of deal. This was huge to them. And I'm talking to you about what, how Jesus Himself looked at Scripture. And again, it's uh, the Father's voice, form, and word. But I want, to look at, I want you to look at some of the ramifications of that in His life as it is expressed in Luke chapter 24. Flip back with me just a couple pages. In Luke chapter 24, I found it really interesting... Jesus, you know this scene. He's on the Emmaus Road scene. That's the whole uh, the resurrection takes place at the beginning of chapter 24, or at least in between the end of chapter 23 and verse 24. And chapter 24, he is uh, he's risen. Angel comes, lets everybody know about it. Verse 13 is the Emmaus Road scene. You have these disciples that are walking along, talking about this whole thing. Jesus comes up incognito. <laughs> Kind of slips along in there. They don't recognize it's him. Hears him talking. Says, "What are you guys talking about?" That's really interesting stuff. And they're like, "Where have you been?" And so they break the whole story down for him. Listen to what he says in verse twenty-five. He says, "How foolish you are." Jesus ever say that to you? <laughs> he says, "How fool." Listen to this. How foolish you are, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ half? to suffer these things and then enter His glory. And He talks about it like, listen, I didn't have a choice in this, guys. Hey, this thing was talked about before I ever came about. Hey, the Christ had to suffer these things and then enter His glory. Hey, the prophets talked about this. This was written in the Scriptures. The details of Jesus' life were talked about before He ever came along. He says that again in verse verse 25, but you come down towards the end uh, end of the book, the end of this chapter... Uh, verse 37 or 38. Uh, let's look at verse 44 just to save time. Jesus appears in the upper room, comes in there. He says in verse 44, He says, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then He opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. And He says, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name. Amen. To all nations. Beginning at Jerusalem. Hey, this is what the Scriptures say. Hey man, I came and submit, came under the authority. I came and literally the fulfillment of Scriptures took place in my body. Wouldn't it be something? Think about this. If you could go down to your job and the fulfillment of the outpouring in the book of Acts could take place in your life. That you wouldn't just go down and yak your mouth about it, but you would come down and talk about it. Paul did that. Paul in witnessing did that. He said, listen, just follow me as I follow Christ. Whatever I do, you do. Wouldn't it be neat if you went down to your job and they said, well, what does a Christian look like? Just watch me. <laughs> Just stay glued on me. 
Come to my house, peer in my windows. Just whatever I do, you do it. Follow me around in my car. How I drive, you drive. That literally, your life is so conformed to the truth of His Word. You're no different then. My favorite passage of Scripture, turn back with me if you would please to the book of Revelation. But I want to read something for you out of John 19. One of my favorite passages of Jesus. <laughs> it's a little comical in my mind. A lot to be said about the Scriptures and the truth that's therein. God's speaking about what's going to take place before it takes place. Chapter 19, Jesus is dying on the cross. This is powerful. It says this, Later, hear this, Later, knowing that all was now completed. And then it says this, So that the Scriptures will be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. Now, did Jesus say He was thirsty because He was thirsty or because the Scriptures had to be fulfilled? <laughs> Can you see this? Later on the cross, knowing that all was now completed, He's like, yes. Then He's like, oh, I forgot i got to be thirsty. I always forget that one. <laughs> and He calls down for a sponge. Hey, a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked it in a sponge, put it up to His lips. He received it, and then He said, it's finished. Whew. Now it's finished. And He gave up His spirit. He couldn't even die until the Scriptures were full. See, what if they were that way in your life? What if they were that way in your life, man? That they just weren't casual. Why do you read the Bible? Oh, I try to. My devotions. Or Fez, why do you get in that book? Oh, it's life, man. How does God speak to me? This is how God speaks to me. It wouldn't just be the TV show Lost anymore where God speaks to me. It'd be, wow, this, man. Really? I mean, it would be His voice and His form that I could know the kind of Father that I'm supposed to be because of His Word. And it was much more than just I look in here and try to do it. It's when I get into this thing, the Holy Spirit, which is alive, reveals truth to me, makes known to me the mysteries of the Gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16, the Holy Spirit, man, who knows the mind of God, lives inside of me, reveals all truth to me. Wouldn't you just be glued into this kind of thing? This is the way, this is the perspective they had of Scripture. Uh, I wanted to read for you just one more thing because it wasn't just Jesus who thought like this. Of course, we looked at the New Testament, uh, the early church, the, the, the book of Hebrews was an established church some 20, 30 years after the death of Christ. They looked at Scripture that way, the voice of God. But the book of Acts, right after this whole thing, in the original language especially, you see the, the words that, that Peter uses is the same kind of word that Jesus uses. It's the, it's the absolute sovereignty of God's Word. It has to be fulfilled. Peter stands up uh, in the midst of the upper room scene. It says, Peter stood up among the believers, a group about 120, and said, Brothers, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled, man. There's no way around it. This stuff had to take place. Scripture. When we come into the book of uh, Revelation, chapter 1, and we read verse 3, and he talks about the words of this prophecy, we're not talking about peripheral stuff. We're not talking about, you know, uh, confusing material that, you know, you can kind of take it any way you want. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's Scripture. It's alive and breathing. God wants to communicate that to you. And what he's attached this to is, get this, there's a blessing associated with getting into this book. Now think about this. If you really want to be used by God, 
If you really want to be the event by which God moves in your life, His hand is stuck in your life, and His fingers start twitching, you find yourself on a cross and your, your life is, is diminished and His life is resurrected and, and you're into what He's doing and you're literally living on... The, see, they take that and He directly ties that to the Scriptures. He directly ties this blessing to the avenue of the blessing is the Scriptures. Uh, you may debate this with me. I'm pretty strong on this. I don't think you can be the Christian you should be if you're not in the book. If the only time you're fed is when you come to church on Sunday, you're hurting. I'm going to tell you. If the only time you're fed is when you come to church on Sunday morning and Pastor Ballinger stands up there with this shovel and shovels truth in your mouth, you're in trouble. I'm telling you. If that's the only time. You know the early church picture <clears throat> was not that he does all the preaching. In fact, Paul had to constantly come in and say, listen, one at a time. <laughs> The idea is everybody. They were cut. They, they'd never been cut loose in the scriptures. Women were allowed in the thing, and they never were allowed before. So they were coming on Sunday morning, going, "Guess where I've been saturated?" Oh, let me tell you. And they were all doing it at the same time. Paul's like, "One at a time." Imagine what that would. It's a directly associated with the scriptures. I don't think you can be who you ought to be unless you're in the Word. This is what he says. He says, blessed is the one, but he says this, describing how we get into the prophecy, okay? how we get into the words of this prophecy, he says, read. This was legendary to me. You read, reading. Uh, we talk about reading. Did you read it? This kind of, uh, I'm, not, I'm not downplaying this. I'm not sure how I feel. It's really good to read your Bible. Let me start off by saying that. It's excellent to read your Bible. Read it, read it, read it, read it. But I'm not so convinced that the whole reading the Bible through in one year is necessarily this kind of reading. It's not bad. Hear me, hey. Not bad. Don't say I said it was bad. It's not bad. But it's not this kind of reading. When he says, blessed are the ones who read the words of this prophecy, it's not like, right on, hey, what is it, 21 chapters, 22 chapters, I'll buzz through this in a week and I've read it. Not that kind of reading. Okay? Not like, well, see, we meet people. Hey, I've read the Bible through, you know, 10 times. That's impressive. Tell me about the book Hosea. What's Paul dealing with in Galatians? What's the theme in 1 Thessalonians? They're like, I have no idea. But I read it. <laughs> so you flunk in history if you did that. If you showed up and said, I read my assignment, what does it say? I don't know. You get an F. I'd give you an F too. <laughs> because the idea of reading is not just uh, words on a page and facts. In fact, I found it interesting. We just looked at Jesus as he described what the scriptures were to him. It's his voice, it's his word, it's his form. Verse 39, don't turn there. Listen to what Jesus says to the leadership of Israel. Shows how he views the word. Listen to this. It's his voice. It's his form. It's his word. Verse 39, he says, You diligently study the scriptures. Do you know that word diligently study? This is powerful. Every time that word is used in the New Testament, it's always associated with, look it up yourself, it's always associated with learning or discovering information. It can never be associated with getting to know a person. Never. So why they get into the scriptures? To get to know him? No. Listen to what he says. You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you can possess eternal life. Why were they getting into the Scriptures? 
Oh yeah, to learn the keys to get to heaven. The seven steps of a... Su- <laughs> yeah, why do I look at the Scriptures? Well, to get my wife in line. Sure, make her a better wife than you know. Honey, it says this. What if that was never meant? It's not information. That's not, the, that's not reading. That's an American understanding of reading. That's not their understanding of reading. See, the leadership of Israel missed Jesus knowing the Scriptures. Why? Because they knew the Scriptures for information. They didn't know the Scriptures for the person. And you can know the book and not know the person. That's heavy. It's a word from your generation. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. The word read, I had no idea about this. The word read, the root word for read, is the Greek word gnosko. There's another word we translate know, or we can, you can't translate it read, but it's, it, the word gnosko, primarily, primary translation is know or knowledge. There's another word you could translate know or knowledge, it's the Greek word oida, which is knowing facts. You cannot describe reading this book in terms of knowing facts. He doesn't. It's the word gnosko, which is an intimate knowing. But that's just the root word. What's tacked on the front of it is the, is the Greek... Uh, uh, is it an antecedent? I can't remember. It's the Greek little front part. <laughs> that's the technical term. Front part. That's what all the Greek scholars use. It's the Greek front part that goes on the front of it. And it's the term ana, which means up or upward or toward. So what scholars tell us about this is it's a beefed up form of gnosko. So it's not just an intimate knowing and knowledge that's gained through personal involvement and experience. Not just that. It's a beefed up form. In other words, when they're talking about reading, they're not talking about a casual approach. It's a beefed up form of just getting into, we call it saturation. Saturation Bible study. You just don't dip into this thing. You dive into this thing. It becomes a part of you. It fills your mind. It reorientates your entire life. And when you allow this book to take, do that in your life, what you begin to find is, is when you begin to just throw yourself within the pages of this and it, beca- it just captivates you, what you begin to find is God's hand begins to creep in your life. See, when you take this right here and bring it right smack dab in the middle of your marriage, whoa, watch out, man. When you begin to say, Jesus, I greatly desire for you to speak to me and reveal you, reveal yourself to me in regards to my marriage. And you dive in the middle of this thing. What you begin to find is a direct result of that. Whoever reads Anagonosko, the words of this prophecy, his hand, you become blessed. You become blessed. And his hands get in the middle of your life and you find yourself not living for yourself but becoming the very event where he's revealed in your marriage. What's the answer, I believe, to your bodily drives? Taking your body, bodily drives and allowing them to come under the authority of... Amen. Not rules. Oh yeah, don't have sex before marriage, I'm doing that. That's not what we're talking about. Literally coming under the directive, control, and authority of God's Word. See, what would happen if we allowed our job, if I begin to just immerse my life and my job in the midst of, and His hand would be. I want to ask you tonight, 
What's your life like in the Word? You're going to flip when I tell you this. Uh, I've got the greatest job in the world. Because I don't have a job. I really don't. People say that all the time. I don't have a job. I get paid. (laughs) I get paid to travel around the United States and the world nowadays. Not too much overseas, three or four times a year. But I get paid to travel around the world and tell people my devotions. Would you believe me if I told you that if I got out of evangelism, I wouldn't stop? Because this isn't a preacher thing. It's a life thing. This is the God-given call to every single Christian to know Him in His Word. I believe that. People say, yeah, but you know so much about it. Well, that that amazes me that we would say that. I have met guys who know everything there ever was to know about football. Really. They know the players, that fantasy football stuff. The fan- I just learned about this. The fantasy football stuff. See, you have to know, watch all the games all week to know how the players are doing and then predict how those players are going to do next week and you pick those players for your team and you predict and the closest prediction wins. That's a full-time job. I mean, those people know football and you say, wow, where'd you go to college for that? Or, excuse me? Yeah, they get the football degree. They say, well, I didn't. I just watch it. 24-7. I could probably tell you what an idol is. How do you know so much about the Bible? Oh, you went to college, that's right. Get after Him and His Word like you get after football. Would you? Focus on Him and His Word like you focus on your sex drive. Learn that today from Oprah. <laughs> Men think about sex every seven minutes. Think about the Bible every seven minutes. Think about Him and His Word every seven minutes. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Folks, can we be the people we've been called to be? Really? Because I'm tired of being fake. I'm tired of preaching one thing here and looking one way out there. I want to be the real deal. I want to be the real deal. I want to be the living representation of what this book tells about. I want want when someone looks at me and says, tell me about Jesus, I can just say, just watch me. Just follow me around town, man. Let Him become your hobby. Have hobbies. Play fantasy football, but drag Jesus right in the middle of that. Until you can't stop talking. You're going to see, you talk about what you're into. I could walk into church and whisper Whisper about football and I'd have ten guys fly around me. See, what would happen if you're down at your job and you had that kind of a deal going on? And people said, hey, John, you said chapter five? Oh, sorry. sorry. Really been into John chapter five. I thought you said, would you want to talk about John chapter five? Because I'm really into John chapter five. Hey, James, whoa, chapter three? Wow, we've really been in down at our church. Talk about James, okay. See, what if that was the way you... If you said, Jesus, just created me a hunger... That's greater than any other hunger of my life. So that somehow being in the midst of this, the blessings of your hand in my life can be unleashed. And I can be all that you dream for me to be. Man, I want that. Don't you want that in your life? Would you be willing to say, Jesus, you know, hey, I'm I'm coming clean tonight. Because I haven't hungered. I haven't hungered after you and your word like I know I should. Yeah, I've been there, done that, read that book. So I just come and you know, I'm really just waiting for Jesus to come back. I'm already going to... 
See, I think that mentality is of the enemy. I don't believe you ever arrive. I don't believe you ever arrive. I think there's perpetual growth that comes from being in the Word. I would hope that I would hope that when I leave and people get around me and they see me every few years, they say, "That boy's still growing." I hope so. I hope they say, "Man, he looks more like Jesus." Growing a beard and everything, man. Let me pray for us, Jesus. I want to be blessed. I do. I want to be the I want to be the event by where your hand is unleashed in my life. I want to be the avenue. I want to be the avenue, God, where someone sees you in my in the Barnes and Noble settings of my life when I'm in a new town. I want to be what you look like in the McDonald's drive-through. I want to be what you look like when tensions in the home and my son's screaming. I want to be what you look like in the hobbies and the game lobbies of my life on the internet. Jesus, very, very plain to me where that's going to happen. It's in your word. Not a casual approach to it, but an addiction, a fascination, an all-consuming habit. Teach me to lean on your word, Jesus. I pray that you would create inside of us hungers and desires for truth. I pray, Father, that you would teach us how every every area of our life comes under the authority of your word. Bend bend our bodies to to the truth of the word. Bend our mind. Take every thought captive to the obedience of truth. Heads are bowed tonight. Eyes are closed. Have you been in his word? I mean, really been in his word. Have you been sloshing through truth? Maybe that's why you haven't won anybody to Jesus this year. Maybe that's why He's not spilling through you like you want Him to. Maybe that's why you struggle more with an attitude. Maybe that's... I really believe that. I believe the telltale signs of spiritual struggle are a direct result of not being in truth. Of not being in the Word. I want to give you the opportunity tonight to respond. I want to give you the opportunity tonight to say, Jesus... Take every area of my life and bring it under the authority of Your Word. I'll give you the opportunity tonight to say, Jesus, I would love to have no other opinion than the book. That my opinions and the book's opinions are the same. That I can literally say that the Old Testament Scriptures, that Jesus is going to write the truth on the fleshly tablets of my heart is true. I can literally say that. I can claim it. I, I can stand up and say, hey, it's taking place right here. I haven't just memorized it. It's becoming the very fabric of my life. Wouldn't it be neat? See, I want John chapter 5 to become the fabric of my life. And of course, I'm into John chapter 6 now. So now I'm wanting John chapter 6 to be woven in the structures of my life. Not just facts that are learned. Not just material that's preached. But literally, it becomes a part of me. I believe you can have that tonight. Anyone want to seek?